Hey, what's going on, everybody? This your boy, Jarrell Mason, better known by some as Jay Mason. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a stranger that's, he's not a stranger, actually, to Beyond the Album Cover, and we've been rocking together since my time machine days at UNCG, my brother, LaTroy Garner of Forecast Media. LaTroy, welcome back on, bro. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for the invite, Jarrell. It's always a pleasure to chop it up with you. Um, seems like we we always find a way to connect, whether it's on my platform or your platform. So it's always it's always fun to, you know, talk music in, in the podcasting space. Yeah, definitely for sure. So what led to the name change to Forecast Media? Let's just get right into it. Okay, so um, we started out as a good old boys radio network back in 2008. And then we sort of morphed into GOB radio network, I'd say around 2016, 2017. Um, but we were kind of having discussions myself, Mario and the rest of the team um, looking at the direction of where we, where we are um, not only as a media company, but just as individuals and felt like we've, kind of outgrown that lane where we're just putting out radio shows or podcasts and we want to branch out and um, explore other areas of media since pretty much the vast majority of us had a mass communications degree. Um, some were more talented in journalism, others in um, radio, television, the whole nine. So it's like, why don't we change the name, have a new identity and put all of our talents to work and forecast media has been born. So pretty much it's just, just a rebranding, right? Pretty much for the most part. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, obviously um, the connotations of good old boys. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. It sort of, it sort of handcuffs us in some respects. So, um, you know, especially with some of the work I'm doing in and out of the company, as well as Mario, um, I, I felt like it was necessary. Right, and nothing wrong with that. So can we talk about how within the past 20, 30 years or so that within the media landscape that we've seen more diverse creativity coming from directors, screenwriters up top that's in the boardroom with the likes of Issa Rae and just recently finished Insecure, Blackish just recently went off, Atlanta's about to launch their um, last season this month and just how within that time frame we've seen a bevy of diversity on screen and off screen um i mean i think it was it was bound to happen eventually like who can tell our stories better than us and i mean we, you know we've we've had people like melvin van peoples and um you know, Richard Roundtree's and um, Spike Lee, Spike Lee, of course, you know, sort of showing us the way to do it with integrity and, you know, paint an honest picture of, you know, our history. And I just think that, um, like you said, the, the Issa's, the Ava DuVernay's, um, uh Donald Glover. Childish Gambino. Yeah, Childish Gambino. Um, you know, countless others. You know, it was it was bound, you know, to um become fruitful for us to 
you know, share our unique stories because we're not a monolith. Right. We're not all, you know, we've had the stories told about slavery for, you know, time and time again. Um, you know, some of us, you know, actually went to college. Some of us were in the military. Some of us um, just enjoy sitting on a porch and hanging with friends. Like, these are all stories that, you know, can be shared to millions and millions and we can easily put a creative twist on it. So I, I love it. Right. And the beautiful thing about it is other underrepresented groups are getting to the foray as well with, uh, you know, fresh off the boat that went off the air a couple of years ago. It was the longest running Asian uh, sitcom and you have Aquafina North from Queens and just recently Reservation mm -hmm. Dogs on Hulu, which tells stories of uh, Native Americans on the reservation out in Oklahoma. So now because that the gates have been opened wide, so to speak, and more options for viewing instead of just cable or regular TV, anybody can just put content out there and tell their own stories without needing someone's approval from a network. That's true. And I mean, I kind of have mixed feelings about all of that. I mean, because it's almost to the point where we're, it's almost overwhelming with, you know, the amount of content that's out there. And I guess it's almost impossible to support everyone. You want to support everyone, but it's, it's very difficult. And as a result, uh, when the ratings uh, doesn't show that it's getting the love that's necessary, then that limits the opportunities of the next person. So, I mean, I'm just curious what's your thoughts on that? Um, my thoughts on that is I kind of agree with what you're saying, how because of the oversaturation with streaming services and network viewing that it's not enough, it's enough room for everybody to come in. But at the same time, you're fragmenting the audience and you're having to pick and choose who do I support, who do I watch. And then if you're on the big networks, if your ratings are not fruitful, then they're just going to drop you as opposed to back when the viewing options were limited, networks were more likely to probably stick around with you if you were a fan favorite, so to speak, because they kind of knew the payoff in the long run. Yeah, I mean, like you say, with the competition, I mean, they're not only com competing with uh, cable, they're competing with streaming, and then within these networks, you're competing against reality television, which is cheaper to produce, and the sensationalism within it, um, it's... Yeah, it's uh, muddy waters. But like we said earlier, uh, I'm just glad that we're in a position to where those opportunities are being presented. Right. And it feels like with streaming services, it feels like the movie industry is going through right now what the music industry went through when Napster, Kazaa, Morpheus, and Bear Share, all of the file sharing services were popping up where people, if it's a good movie they really want to go see, they'll go to a theater. But other than that, I'll just wait to come on streaming so that way I can watch in the comfort of my own home and I have to pay 20, 30 plus bucks a ticket depending on where you're at and 50 bucks plus in refreshments or more if you got a family. So can we talk about how the movie industry is having to make a shift in the viewing landscape of con the consumer and the theater business? Um, I mean, I think I think it's beneficial to them. I think it's opening up more doors for them as far as, you know, releasing directly to Netflix or HBO Max, 
you know, in comparison to just um, going to the big screen. So, I mean, you know, budgets vary, obviously. So in some cases, like especially during the pandemic, there were movies that were being released where they pretty much shot from one scene, you know, one setting, the entire movie. So I, I think the pandemic especially was was a way for them to like kind of take a step back and kind of reevaluate things. Like, is it necessary to, you know, have these big budgets and, um, you know, shoot a movie and wait a year and a half for, for it to be released? So I, I think it's beneficial. Right. And with the movie theater business and you're making money off of concessions, off tickets, it kind of felt the old way before the 1984 ruling when the NCAA got ruled against by the Supreme Court and said, hey, you cannot negotiate price fixing for television games and limit the amount of television exposure for each schools because the mindset at the time was protect the gate because if we open up TV, Nobody's going to come to the game. And I felt like the movie theater industry was like that with streaming because they want to protect their gate, which was ticket sales, because that was the only way you were going to see the movie was you had to go to the theater and pay a ticket. Yeah. And I mean, it's similar also to like um, closed circuit television and pay-per-views, like with boxing and professional wrestling, how how that industry has morphed over the years, how you used to have to go to a theater to see a a fight and then eventually uh, especially around the time when tyson and wrestlemania became big where you ordered your pay-per-view you know directly off the tv screen call your local cable operator and pay the 50 60 dollars to uh, have it on your television and now it's even easier where um, a lot of times you can just watch it on your phone or or your um tablet and have it saved on there forever and and i mean even with the the zone app you know get all of the boxing matches so i mean it's always changed and a lot of times it's for the better right and i feel like the nfl is slow to that party because as we're seeing this upcoming season that thursday night football will be exclusively on amazon and they just launched their streaming app nfl plus but I think the last domino to really fall is for Sunday Ticket to give up their exclusivity with DirecTV and make it open and also not tie in having to just view games that's based in your local market. Because if you have the Plus app or if you're watching games on Yahoo, you're still tied down to what's being shown in your market. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially the way I'm traveling now. Um, just being able to have access to all of the games. I'm pretty much a red zone consumer. I'll have two TVs on in the living room. So I have the red zone on one channel. And since I'm primarily in the Carolinas, I, I get the Panthers games. So I'll have to watch the Panthers games, unfortunately. And, you know, just make do. Because I'm fo following my fantasy sports teams for the most part. So mm. red zone to me is always the best bet. Right. And speaking of betting, it's crazy to see how within the past, I want to say three to four years, ever since sports betting has been legalized here in America. Now, 
it's been going on for decades overseas, but America has finally started to really catch on and see, hmm, we can make a whole bunch of money from sports betting. And it is kind of having it be murky waters with, you know, you're getting told the over, the unders, and who to pick, who not to pick, and how I think America was just trying to figure out what is a legalized way that we can gamble off of sports. So that way Pete Rose don't have to feel bad for what he did, even though I know he's still not going to get into the Pro Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. He's still on their boo-boo list. Well, I mean, I think that's just, you know, the hypocrisy within um, professional sports, especially baseball, because, I mean, they try to be holier than thou when it comes to, like you said, Pete Rose betting on baseball, and then you want to get into the steroids um, issue with uh, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, list goes on. But David Ortiz gets into the Hall of Fame. So it's like... <laughs> It, it never makes sense to me. It's like they pick and choose like whoever's whoever gets along with the media. Uh, that's that's who they'll support despite their um, cheating ways. But if you were like Barry and and Roger Clemens and um, didn't really give the media the time of day, then, you know, they're not going to vote for you. And I mean, it almost gets to the point where should sports writers um, have the power to select who should be elected into the Hall of Fame? Should it be like a panel of former athletes and general managers and and managers, people that are actually on the field or, um, you know, running franchises to make those decisions? Right. I kind of agree with you on that aspect because I've known several players who got inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame had to wait because somebody on the media panel didn't like them or held the grudge from their playing days. And when it came up for them to be nominated, they just said, nah, I'm going to make you wait for a little bit before you get that gold jacket. So I definitely think more players, GMs, or anybody that's been in that field of sport should have greater input on who should get inducted. And while I think the sports writers should have an opinion, but not have it be the end-all, be-all, and with sports, we just recently found out that yesterday from uh, the day that we're recording this podcast on Labor Day weekend, that the college football playoff just announced that they'll be expanding from four teams to 12, starting no later than 2026. So it'll be six of the highest ranked conference champions, along with six at-large bids, and then the highest ranking four of the conference champs get a buy. So what are your thoughts on the college football playoff expanding from four teams to 12 within the next four years? I mean, it was inevitable. I mean, since the college football playoff started in 2014, I mean, you could tell that it was um, heavily skewed towards the Southeastern Conference. It was, it was, they were guaranteed to get a team in. And as um, expansion within the Big Ten and the SEC continues uh, with Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC and USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten, it was only going to get worse. Like um, the opportunities for schools in the ACC, the Pac-12 and the the um, Power Fives, they were going to decrease. So they pretty much, they had no choice but to um, 
vouch for increasing the college football playoff system. Now, um, there's always been arguments about not wanting the players to play more games, but you know, you know what runs the NCAA and that's money. So this is going to lead to, you know, a bigger television package, probably (laughs) double what it is now. And I mean, I think it will make college football better because we enjoy the regular season, but once we get into, well, right after um, the conference championship games, there's like this lull of, you know, three or four weeks where um, you're just waiting for the national championship game. And, and it's not the same. Like you have 40 or 50 bowl games and 95% of them you don't care about. They're just, you know, for television viewing, but you don't really care about the outcome. Right. And it's a money grab, too, because a lot of those bowls have traditional conference tie-ins. And what we're seeing with the expansion of the playoff, along with teams being gobbled up by certain conferences to create pretty much super conferences, that sooner or later, these traditional bowl tie-ins are going to go the way of the Betamax. Right. Because I was... When um when Texas and Oklahoma joined the SEC and USC and UCLA, you know, joined to join the Big Ten, which will be in a couple of years, my thought was like the ACC would poach teams from the Big Twelve, and then the Pac twelve would poach some other teams, and it would just be four mega conferences that would make up say like twenty teams each mm-hmm. eventually, but. But now with the um, college football playoff system, you know, going going to twelve, like Notre Dame, I think they will definitely stay independent, and then um, a lot of these other conferences will will survive a little bit longer. Right, but how would all this expansion and the playoff extension uh, kind of leave the teams outside of Power Five out in the cold, like a Coastal Carolina? App State are those groups that's kind of looking for an outside shot to get in to do what Cincinnati did last year, which they pretty much had to run the table and have a little help in order to get into the college football playoff. I mean, it's it's always going to be difficult for them. Um, and the odds are going to be stacked against them. But like you said, if they go undefeated, um, dominate their conference, and – you know, fall somewhere in the top 10 or top 12, then the odds are in their favor that they will make the playoffs. Cause I, I think with the system, the way that it, it's been tossed around so far, it would be six conference champions and six at large. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it would be the ACC, the big, big 10, big 12, pack 12, SEC conference USA. That's six. And then, you know, the the top six. I'm not sure if it'll be the top six teams after that or whether the committee will meet and decide who the six at-large teams are. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm thinking they would at least put one team from a Power 5 school in there. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking they're going to go along that lines and 
kind of have one spot reserved for a non-Power 5, the highest-ranking non-Power 5, along with the five Power 5 conference champs, and then six at-large bids. So you that way, you can kind of sort of get a little bit of a March Madness feel for the playoff, but I know some people are still calling it the Alabama Invitational or the SEC Invitational because, like you stated earlier, that seems like almost every year the SEC tends to get two teams in to the playoff. I mean, our championship game last year was Alabama, Georgia. Which I mean, they, they were the top two teams. (laughs) I mean, there, there was no doubt that uh, when Georgia and Alabama faced off an SEC championship, that they will probably meet for the championship a month later for the national championship a month later. So um, even what the year, there was a year when LSU and Alabama, they were one and two. And, you know, they played um, for the, the SEC championship. And, you know, it was, I mean, they were the best two teams in the country. That's that's a great thing about, about the SEC. It's like every week you're competing against the strongest teams. And some of them, as a result, they their coaches lose their jobs. Like an Auburn team can – end up being eight and four, eight and five and third, third or fourth in their division, but they're really a top 20 school. Mm. Right. And what are your thoughts on name, image, and likeness? Now players can get money from them playing basketball or football. Whereas for years, NCAA was like, no, 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 you can't get money from your name, image, and likeness. And when you sign your scholarship, it says that they own your name, image, and likeness forever in perpetuity. So Christian Leitner wasn't getting residuals when they show his face every year during March Madness or insert college basketball player here. But now college athletes can be able to cash in on that. So what are your what's your take on that? Well, I mean, we got to give a shout out to Ed O'Bannon, first off. Yes, sir. I mean, um, he... He pretty much got the ball rolling on something to me that, you know, should have been taken care of a long time ago. Um, And in collegiate athletics, if they had done this years ago, it would only made the sport stronger because, you know, the athletes would have felt like, yeah, I can stay. I can stay in college longer and um, make the brand stronger, make their brand stronger. I mean, it, with, especially with with basketball, the players leaving after their freshman year, you know, not prepared. Um, we don't really know as much about them, and they go to the NBA or the G League, and um, they're not ready. Nine times out of ten, they're not ready for it. So they have to sit sit and develop or play against grown men, and basically go through the learning curve on the court when they could have been doing it walking walking on the campuses of unc or duke or kansas and being the big man on campus so i mean i think it's necessary and um i'm not sure how how it will play out within the locker rooms where you may have say like a cj stroud making millions off of his NIL, but then his teammates are struggling to 
get any any deals like whether that will break up the uh, camaraderie within a locker room that's something i'm interested in finding out about yeah true but i know one person who's happy about that is armando baycott at carolina my man's been getting to the bag ever since the nil <laughs> and him along with the other starting four from last year's runner up they decided they're going to run it back and they're going into this basketball season, preseason ranked number one. Um, only hold that Carolina has to feel is the loss of a transfer from Oklahoma, Brady Manick. And that I think that Carolina is poised to get the job done, cut down the nets this year. And Duke starts the new era of uh, John Shire and Coach K step down. I'm a Carolina fan, for those who don't know, so I'm extra happy that Coach K is no longer roaming the sidelines, and we handed him two big L's uh, in the semifinals and then also in the last home game ever at Cameron when all of the Duke alums had their special shirts on and they went through the special tunnel. And to see Coach K address the crowd after that L, as a Carolina fan, it brought me great delight. So um, to the audience, I'm a Duke fan. <laughs> but wrong, I, wrong shade of but I also but I also worked at UNC for um almost 15 years. So but who do you root for though? I mean because you got because you kind of got mutual interest. I mean Duke fan, nah. but, but but you worked at the right shade of blue. Nah, I mean I'm a fan of Duke, and at the time Carolina just you know would cut my checks. So I mean I, I kind of kept it at that, but you know, when Duke would beat Carolina. You know, it was the best experience ever, just being able to walk around campus and see all the sad faces. But yeah, after last season, yeah, that was <laughs> that was the worst. That was the most devastating experience. I still haven't watched the Final Four game. I was at a New Edition and Charlie Wilson concert and Jodeci concert at the time, so I was following it on my phone. I I DVR'd the game, but I still haven't watched it yet. Oh, man, how was the culture tour, man? Because I wanted to go, but of course, being out here in New Mexico, you know, the struggle is real when it comes to like urban acts. But as you know, and most people know, whenever new additions on the bill, you're going to get a show. I mean, it was an amazing show, you know, from top to bottom. Joe to see open, you know, it's always good to to see them, you know, just active. Um, all four members you know, we're, we're there because, you know, sometimes, you know, Devante won't won't show up. And sometimes, you know, JoJo is is out doing other things. But, I mean, it was an amazing show. Charlie Wilson, I mean, he said he had knee surgery, but you couldn't tell. Like, he was, he was dancing like he was in his 20s or 30s. New edition came out, did about an hour and a half, two hours set. Um you know, the wardrobe was on point. Of course, the choreography, thanks to Uncle Brooke, Payne, always sharp. They sort of, you know, they would go from all six members and then uh, they would do songs without Johnny. Then they do songs without Bobby. Then Bobby would do some solo stuff. Johnny would do some solo stuff. Ralph would do solo. BBD would come out. You know, it was just, it was just nonstop. It had a great flow to it, so... Yeah, sorry they didn't come out to New Mexico, but I mean, aren't they supposed to 
like have a residency hopefully yeah, um, a yeah. vegas residency yeah i think they're gonna have a vegas residency so i should be able to see them there since vegas is only about an eight hour drive and one person who's definitely killing it in vegas and getting that money is ursher um he just extended his residency out at caesars and it's pretty much been well reviewed and you're gonna get your money's worth when you go see usher and i think vegas is really starting to see the value of R&B, hip-hop acts, and say, hey, this is an audience that's underserved on the strip, so let's start accommodating the crowd, so that way we can get more revenue, and as you see with Anita Baker, had a residency out in Vegas, that's been well-reviewed, well-received, Janet had a short residency in uh, Vegas, which I had the pleasure to go see, which was great, and then, of course, Bruno residency, and it feels like they're slowly starting to understand the power of their urban audience and the dollars that they bring out in Vegas. Cause typically right. when you see residencies, you normally think of magicians, dance groups, oldies, Celine and Dion, pop acts, Michael Jackson, Celine Dion. Yep. Mm. But um, yeah, I'm definitely going, I would like to catch Usher sometime next year. I'm looking at, either around Memorial Day weekend or 4th of July weekend next year. Mm -hmm. Right. So what do you think about Vegas embracing the whole urban audience and starting to have more residencies catering to, you know, urban music? I mean, I think because of how strong urban music has been, especially, you know, over the last 25, 30 years, that it's hard to ignore. Um, they're not as they're not as far behind as say the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm still kind of dumbfounded about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and some of the black star power that you know hasn't been um, enshrined yet. But uh, Vegas to me is just the is a city that um, is has um, gone from being what like like what you said um, the entertainment for. Um, a different demographic, older white people, and now getting that infusion of youth, uh, especially with, you know, the Raiders being in town and the, the um, aces and more than likely going to get either baseball or basketball or NBA team soon. I mean, I'm, I'm considering at least getting a condo in Vegas. I mean, cause I, I enjoy going there. There's, there's so much to do. So um, it's just a city that, um, has embraced uh black star power i feel right and i know that a new edition residency is going to be coming by i think one residency that should happen in vegas that i really think will set it off would be if wu-tang were to have a vegas residency picture it wu-tang vegas yeah i mean i'm an east coast hip-hop <laughs> um aficionado I'm actually going to see them and Nas in Charlotte in two weeks. So um, I have a fond memory of seeing them. It was the year that the Giants um, won the NFC Championship game at Lambeau Field. And Wu-Tang was performing at the Neighborhood Theater in Charlotte. And after the show, um, Inspector Deck signed, signed my, my own cash rules, everything around me t-shirt. So... That was that was a fond memory.
Yeah, I got a chance to see Raekwon. Um, back when I was in college in Greensboro, he was performing at the end club. It was him and uh, Redman. Definitely great show, great lyricists, great MCs. I believe the new season of Wu-Tang and American Saga comes on Hulu later this month. That's definitely a great show if you have not uh, checked that out. And one thing that I'm liking now, especially with uh, Mass Appeal, is that they're putting out a lot of great content telling the true stories behind what was big in hip-hop, the stories about the Supreme Team, Uncle Ralph and Video Music Box and all the other great content that Mass Appeal produced. And it's hard to believe that it all started with a basement party at uh, Sedgwick and Cedar, DJ Cool Herc, and hip-hop is now the most popular genre in the world. And it has the same longevity and clout as rock when everybody thought that it was just a passing fad and it would go away. And we grew up with it, you know, underneath that first generation that grew up with hip hop. We came up after that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was like three or four years old in my uh, grandfather's uh, den break dancing, you know, on cardboard boxes. <laughs> so, I mean, hip hop is. 49 years old about to be 50 so i mean you know it's a testament you know to our perseverance as a culture and and the creativity that um something like you said started in the bronx is now a global phenomenon and it continues to go through different stages um some for good some for bad but um at the core i mean it's it's our lifeline, you right? Know, the way I the way I dress, the way I talk, um, you know, in a lot of cases, the way I maneuver as as a businessman, entrepreneurial mindset, you know, is attributed to hip hop. Right, is embedded in everyday life. You know, to see it being in academia and commercials, and you know, just recently, D Nice played Carnegie Hall. You know, to have D-Nice, who started out with BDP, his own solo stuff, web designer, DJ, to be at Carnegie Hall and know how prestige that space is. And like Biggie said, you never thought that hip-hop would take it this far. He couldn't been no more right. Yeah, I mean, off of the same song, it's like it was all a dream. And then this is something that I've coined in my head. It's like, it was all a dream until I worked hard for it. And I mean, that's pretty much that sums up hip hop. It was all a dream mm -hmm. until we worked hard and we we knocked down these doors and we're in places that I'm sure cool hurt never imagined we would be in. Right. And, you know, and to think about the South's influence in hip hop, you know, from Memphis with 8-Ball, MJG, 3-6 Mafia, Houston, Ghetto Boys, Rap-A-Lot, Florida, Uncle Luke, Miami Bass, and now DJ Khaled, Slip and Slide, and then, of course, everything that came out of Atlanta. So can we just talk about the legacy and influence that the South has had on hip hop? I think I think the South, I think they, like you said, each individual city, um, their music just captured the essence of that city, whether it was Atlanta or Miami or New Orleans or Houston. Um, 
I think it was necessary because like New York hip hop had an identity and in California, LA and the Bay had their own identity. I mean, we, you know, us being down South, we just needed something that we could relate to. Um, being in the Carolinas, we sort of, uh, there was a lot of friends, a lot of my friends, you know, they would walk around in baggy clothes acting like they were from New York, even though they weren't from New York. But then as the South became more and more popular, it's like, you know, these are people that talk like us. They sound exactly like us. And um, they eat the same same type of foods we eat, like like Goody Mob Soul Food album. That was, you know, that's core listening for anyone that's looking to uh, get a history li lesson on Southern hip hop, you know, Southern playalistic. Um, like you said, A Ball and MJG coming out hard, Tila, um, the Ghetto Boys, Big Mike, something serious, mm, um, Poison Clan, UGK, Poison Clan, Luke, uh, Trick Daddy's early stuff. I mean, it was just a lot. I mean, even if we want to go to the lesser known, I, I mean, people like, um, from the dungeon family such as cool breeze you know watch for the hook um raheem the dream raheem i'm trying to think of some more of the of the houston rappers that Slim were Thug, you know dj, DJ screw yeah Kiki, big mike fat pat yeah fat uh, pat trader truth mm, all of them mm, yeah man it's definitely three crazy. six mafia yes sir project pat yeah it's, it's a long list of them and they're all unique which is something that's somewhat lacking today is is the personality. I don't I don't feel like there's enough um, personality or uniqueness to you know what's coming out. It's like you can't tell a difference from a New York rapper and a Memphis rapper right. nowadays. Right. And the good thing about with hip hop, like you stated, almost being fifty, is that the elders of hip-hop have branched out to do other things. Of course, we know, you know, LL, Queen Latifah, Will Smith, and the likes, but we also have Bun B with the Trill Burgers, which was just voted Best Burgers in America. Mia X got uh, whipped them pots, Nas, Sweet Chicks, Styles P got the juices going, and it's just good to see not have all your money be tied in hip-hop, but diversify and pretty much go outside of the realm because people are going to want to associate with you because you come from hip-hop right i mean we have we have authors we have politicians you know that you know started out in hip-hop we have um we have people that are uh lawyers like tracy lee you know it's, you know hip-hop there's no bounds to to where we can go we have we have painters, you know, like Andre 3000 will sit sit there on the curb in New York just painting. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just don't don't limit yourself to just the music, you know, utilize all your gifts and your notoriety to you know spawn other tentacles. Right. And funny that you mentioned three stacks. Um, I was just listening to LA Reed's interview on Quest of Supreme, and he was talking about how Andre didn't know about Big Boy recording Speaker Box, and he called LA. Was like, "Hey, I got something." 
And he did the love below in three weeks. Wow. In three weeks, he my, my man cranked out the love below like it was nothing. And of course, we know what numbers that album did. And I believe that was the last hip hop album to win album of the year at the Grammys. I believe I would want to say. Yeah. Back in what, 2005? Like 04, 03, 04. So it was early 2000s when, um, when, when that album took over. And it's funny that you also mentioned uh, East Coast hip hop and how a lot of people from the South were emulating New York. Um, I didn't know this until watching the documentary about Organized Noise that Diddy directed Outcast video for Players Ball. And Diddy told right. Andre 3000, like, yo, why are you wearing this? Because, you know, I'm trying to be like New York. He was like, nah, you know, embrace where you're from. You know, and that's where we see him in the Braves jersey and just really embracing the true Southern swag. And, you know, for a lot of times, you know, being from the South, a lot of people looked at us as slow and behind. And, of course, back then, musically, everything was coming late down south while I was playing in other parts of the country sooner. But I think once Southern Paralistic dropped, you know, that's when everybody really started to pay attention to the South and say, okay, the South got lyricism. It's more than just Uncle Luke and Miami bass because that was what everybody kind of envisioned. Most of the South is still bumping, you know, which was pretty much party music and not something with uh, a message. Yeah, any lyrical content. <laughs> mm, I mean, the South did have some trash too. Um, I'm not gonna say no names, but the South did have some trash. But but still, it just made people really respect and looked at the South as hmm. Okay, they got they really do have something to say. It's more than just you know, like I said, booty music and switching to sports mm -hmm. again really quick. Uh, NFL will be kicking off next week. Uh, Carolina Panthers will be playing against the Cleveland Browns, and it's going to be a revenge game for new Panthers quarterback Baker Mayfield, who just came from the Browns. And hopefully Christian McCaffrey will stay healthy this year. So do you think Matt Rule is on the hot seat going into year three? And what do you think the number of wins he may need in order to keep his job in Charlotte? Oh, I mean, yeah, that hot seat is <laughs> is at a fevered pitch to the point where I'm – it's like if he's walking walking over it barefoot, <laughs> like he's hopping hopping around trying to get off of it. Ah, well, their division, you know, we have we had the Falcons, who will probably probably be in the basement. The Saints, Jameis Winston is their quarterback. I guess the jury is out on whether he will keep the turnovers down, uh, but they have an amazing defense. And the Buccaneers, obviously, they have the GOAT um, at quarterback, but their offensive line is in shambles to start the season. So, I mean, I wouldn't say the division is up for grabs, but the Panthers might be able to get some wins because the division isn't the strongest. I could see them in, in the seven to eight win range, missing the playoffs and firing Matt Rule uh, probably before the end of the season. I got him going. Will he be the first one? Will he be the first casualty? I don't know, but I don't see him making it through the entire season. 
Mm, I got them winning at least nine, and I got them squeaking into the playoffs as a wild card because if you notice with Matt Rule and his prior stops, year three tends to be the breakout year for him where it all finally comes together. I mean, the defense played great last season, just that the offense just sputtered once McCaffrey went down and then Darnold showed he wasn't the guy. Then they brought Cam back. And that didn't go over so well. So if you could just get decent quarterback play from Baker along with that defense, you can win some games. Okay. Yeah, I haven't looked at their entire schedule to see see how tough it is outside of uh, division. Who are they playing as far as, like, AFC teams? Um, As far um, as that goes, I don't have the schedule in front of me to see who they're playing. But I say I'm guessing the central. I'm guessing since they're playing the Browns in week one, they're playing the Ravens, the Bengals, Steelers at least. So, mm-hmm. so it's that's not gonna a- be easy. AFC North. Yeah, that's not gonna be an yeah. easy, easy feat. And uh, do you think uh Cincinnati's gonna show this season that last year wasn't a fluke and that they could possibly build on their surprise Super Bowl run last season? Yeah, I mean, I think that they got stronger. Like they they um made uh, the offensive line a priority, and uh, Joe Burrow is in a year uh, another year into the into the system. Jamar Chase, obviously, the chemistry they have. Um, Jamar is probably the next great receiver in the NFL. Um, their def- defense, they made some additions there as well. So. Will they make it back to the Super Bowl? I, I don't know because the AFC is so strong. But, I mean, it wasn't a fluke, in my opinion. Yeah, it wasn't a fluke either. I felt had their offensive line play would have been better, they would have pulled it off and won the whole thing. But Aaron Donald's a bad boy. But um, everybody out the AFC, they're picking the Bills to come out. I think they will. And I think they'll win it all because I really want to see Buffalo wipe the stench off of those 90s failures that Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, Andre Reed, Bruce Smith, and those guys can get done in four straight Super Bowls. I really want to see that happen for Buffalo. Because they should have beaten Kansas City. I mean, 13 seconds. You only had one job. Yeah. 13 seconds. That was that was probably, you know, one of the that was one of the most exciting games I've ever watched in any sport. Mm. Yeah, I agree. That was the best NFL game I've ever seen. To me, best than the Panthers-Patriots Super Bowl in uh, 2004 when the Panthers lost thanks to Adam Vinatieri and John Casey kicking that ball out of bounds. It still hurts. It still hurts. Because that that Super Bowl loss was even worse than uh, Super Bowl 50 when um, we were steamrolling teams all year long and then Sheriff Payton had to pull mm-hmm. one more great game, and uh, we just picked the wrong day to have a bad game. Yeah, I actually thought I thought you all would take that one. I mean, because like you said, Cam was Cam was unstoppable, dabbing and, on everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think I picked Carolina to win, and I was gonna be celebrating in Uptown, even though I'm a Cowboys fan. <laughs> 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 and speaking of speaking of Cowboys, do you think this year is the year that they finally put it together and get a Super Bowl I, since '95? Nah, <laughs> I'm a realist. I'm I'm not like like the fans. Stephen A. You know continues to 
uh, heckle <laughs> on first take. I, I mean, I think we we haven't been as aggressive on, um, you know, free agent signings as we should. And we've let a lot of talent walk out the door. Um, you know, our wide receiver room is kind of thin, obviously losing Amari Cooper and then signing James Washington and he's out. So, um, and Michael Gallup is, is going to miss a few games. So we're thin there and, um, I'm not sure how they're going to split the carries between Pollard and Zeke, but I mean, Pollard is the explosive back of the bunch. Maybe use Zeke more for between the tackles running. Um, I'm just not as optimistic. You know, we won 12 games last year. We'll probably drop, a, you know, drop to like nine or 10, make the playoffs and hopefully fire Mike McCarthy and bring Sean Payton in. So, yeah, that's, so, so, that's you my think, hope. so you think that's what's going on? Payton's stepping away from New Orleans. You think uh, Jerry probably got him on speed dial and just waiting for McCarthy to tank and kind of making a back backroom deal. Say, hey, when we let him go, just slide right on in. I mean, I think if if Sean Payton told Jerry that he was ready to return, he would have been our coach, you know, going into this season. I think Payton wanted to take a year off to recharge and, and then he'll he'll look at his options. But okay. once Jerry finds out that, you know, that's going on and yeah, Jerry's gonna make that move. Right. Switching to b-ball really quick, do you think the Warriors will go back-to-back or are you taking the field to hoist up the Larry O'Brien trophy this year? Uh, I'm taking the Warriors. They should be better, you know, with the young talent maturing. Wiseman and Moody and Jordan Poole um, continuing to get better because I think he was only 21 years old. So, um, and Wiseman didn't play at all. Yeah, Clay will be Clay will hopefully be back to being a two-way assassin that he is. You know, Steph is his jumper isn't gonna go anywhere. It's just a matter of whether Draymond his minutes will probably take a hit and whether you know he'll become a combustible teammate or will he accept it. That would be the only deterrent to them uh winning back to back championships in the the fifth one for the big three. Mm, I'm taking the field. I'm I'm taking the field because I, I think LeBron's going to come on the mission. I think Clippers are going to be healthy with you get Paul George and Kawhi back. You still got Phoenix who, although they had the best record in the league last year, wet the bed against Dallas. I, you pretty much return, return that same core. Uh, you got Denver and you have Dallas still, even though they just lost Jalen Brunson to the Knicks. And you, you still got Luka. So I'm gonna t- I'm gonna take the field because I even though I think the Warriors have a good shot at going back to back, I still think there's there's too many teams in the field that's gonna be hungry, ready to come for their neck. You know, Boston don't sleep even though they just lost Danilo Gallinari for the year for torn ACL out six to twelve months. They still are formidable, formidable, and I just think. You know, the field is just wide open, Memphis. And then just recently, uh, Donovan Spider-Mitchell just got traded from Utah to Cleveland. And it's completely a fire sale in Cleveland. Every Not Cleveland, excuse me, Utah. Everything must go. Danny Ainge is 
I think think he's front office up there, and they're looking at fire selling everything. We're just gonna blow it up and rebuild, and that's why uh, former Duke alum uh, Quinn Snyder left as coach. Yeah, I mean, well, Danny Ainge is is a master when it comes to um, getting what he wants in trades. So, I mean, I Rudy Gobert that that trade. You know what he got like five uh, first round picks, mm. and then he's then he's getting an additional three for for Spider as well as Colin Sexton and Laurie Markkinen. Mm. And I mean this draft coming up, we have have the kid from where is he from France? Mm. That's supposed to be the number one pick, so it's almost like he's he's tanking to get his hands on him, which they say he's the um top um rated prospect since lebron so oh wow so this uh, kid must, must be the real deal if he's getting mentioned with lbj oh yeah i mean i can't remember how tall he is but he has a long wingspan i think longer than durant's mm. so yeah a lot of teams are you know trying to you know get their assets in place in order to draft him i think his name is frank wimbanaya something like that mm-hmm yeah, and um, you mentioned how, like I said, it's a fire sale going on in Utah, but with Spider, I heard that Charlotte had a chance to draft him when he came out, but he they ended up passing on him in the draft. So now I can bash Jordan. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If you get drafted by the Hornets, it's just pressure enough to know that the GOAT is upstairs, probably got an emergency jersey in Jordan's, in a glass display case, ready to come down and give you that rare air anytime he feels like it. Because you saw that clip when the Hornets were playing the Lakers and they showed a shot of him in the press box looking disgust, like he wanted to go down there and do it himself. I'm like, this man probably tell you, take off my shoes. You can't wear my shoes in this building. You you can wear some Procads or some Payless, but you definitely can't wear my logos if you're playing for me. I mean, Jordan probably could still be a top 50 or 60 player in the NBA right now. You know, I mean. I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, who knows? I wouldn't I put mean. it past him. I mean, it's like a dog whistle. I mean, you saw at the 75th anniversary, he was clowning magic. Like, where your shoes at? We could go one-on-one right now. He's ready for all the smoke anytime, anywhere, any place. And we know he takes it personally, as we saw in the last dance. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, goats are always competitive. Like you, you don't reach that level without having some sort of competitive gene and using any and every slight as a source of motivation. So, mm. I mean, clearly from watching that Last Dance documentary, Jordan he he makes mental notes of everything, and and he hasn't forgotten it thirty years later. No, that that was hilarious when uh, they would bring him the laptop. Showing the clips, he was sitting there laughing. Like, <laughs> I pity the fool, especially talking about Isaiah Thomas and, 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 and everything like that. But that's what makes the greats greats. And speaking of the greats, you know, Serena Williams just ended her career with a third-round loss in the U.S. Open. And it was pretty much the end of an era. Because think about it, where she started from and where – she is and how she's evolving to the next phase of her life and her career, how 
it's just been amazing to watch. So your thoughts on Serena and what she's done for the sport of tennis. Um, yeah, I watched the match um, last night as I watch most Grand Slams and, and I'm on pins and needles the entire match. Um, I kind of felt like, especially playing doubles with Venus the night before that, that might've been too much on the, on her plate, especially since she's only played in a few tournaments this year. But um, yeah, she went out like the champion, like the goat that she is, um, you know, having five match points against her and, and staving off elimin elimination. But I mean, like I said, I mean, just the, the totality of her career, um, it it was it was an incredible journey. Um winning the US Open back in what 97, 98. And back then, you know, tennis, there were a lot of Hall of Famers that, you know, like your Steffi Graffs and your Monica Sellis, your um Martina Lindsay Davenports, uh-huh. Um Martina Hingis, you know, Jennifer Venus. Capriati. There was a lot, yeah, there was a lot of competition and um, for her to win during that era and, you know, Sharapova, you know, it was, it was a testament. And then, you know, we can't ignore the impact, you know, how, uh, you know, two, two girls from Compton, you know, invaded the sport. I mean, obviously they weren't the first, you know, you had your Althea Gibsons and your Zena Garrisons, your Arthur Ashes, um, people like that, but just the way they did it you know, on their own terms, you know, salute to King Richard, of course. Yeah, definitely a great film. And to see how their legacy, the Wham sisters, especially how you have a generation of girls that grew up watching Venus and Serena say, hey, I started playing tennis because of you, you know, because tennis, you know, is all about privilege and access and be able to get inside those doors of those exclusive clubs. But, you know, uh, Mr. Williams pretty much said, no, I'm going to make our own way and pretty much have them change the face of the game. People looked at him like he was crazy, but as long as you got the master plan, you just implement it and, you know, you got to give salute, salute to him for that. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, Oracine, their mother, you know, seems like she was the the calming presence you know, within the situation. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just excited to see, you know, over the next five or 10 years, the fruits of their labor, as far as more and more women of color popping up, you know, in the game of tennis. Mm, and speaking of goals, we were talking about Brady earlier. Do you think it's because that he couldn't turn off that switch as to why he unretired Following his retirement, he just kind of looked at Giselle and the kids and was like, nah, I ain't built for this pickup drop-off playdate life. Um, I need that competitive juice. I mean, he clearly still has a lot in the tank. I mean, like uh, the NFL players voted him the number one player on their top 100 list. You know, so he's still, he's still you know, playing better than ever, passing for 5,000 yards, throwing 40-plus touchdowns um, in a system that uh, limits, you know, the, you know, has a limited injury risk 
you know. So I think I think that this will be his last season, but he didn't want to go out under those circumstances where there was still some debate on whether it was time or not. Mm -hmm. So when he does step away, who do you think will be that next face for the NFL? Or do you think it's multiple hmm. guys that will be, be the face of the league once Brady goes? I mean, it, it seems like it's trending towards Patty Mahomes. I think um, the numbers he's been putting up over the last four years and the system he's in with Andy Reid, um, he seems to have a squeaky clean image uh, and a personality to go with it. I think I think he's prime prime face of the NFL moving forward. Because, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, he probably, you know, has maybe three or four more years left in him. So, right. yeah, it seems like it's it's more more Patty Mahomes. Yeah, I mean, he's the football version of Steph Curry, but right now he only has one Super Bowl ring to show for it. But that'll all, that'll all change before it's all said and done. And, um, you know, just recently, Sam Mills got inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So big ups to the Mills family, uh, Carolina Panthers for that. And I believe the next Panther to get inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I don't know if he'll be eligible for it next year or the following year after, of course, would be Julius Peppers as the first homegrown Carolina Panther to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Because we know Sam Mills, you know, played for the Panthers, but he started off playing with the New Jersey Generals in the USFL and then migrating over to the New Orleans Saints where he played in the Dome Patrol and then came over to Carolina. So when Julius Peppers get inducted, I believe he will be slam dunk first ballot. He'll get in. And I also predict that next year, Torrey Holt will get inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Torrey Holt from around the triad area, played college football at NC State and was part of the greatest show on turf with uh, Pro Football Hall of Famers, Isaac Bruce, Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk, and Pro Football Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeil. So it's only a matter of time before Torrey Holt gets that gold jacket in Canton. And Orlando Pace. And Orlando Pace as well, yes. Yeah, so I I just really think that it's going to be a great season as far as sports goes. And right now we're experiencing great music. You know, J.I.D. signed to J. Cole's record label, Dreamville, just dropped his new album and fire masterpiece. I mean, he got a verse from Yasin Bey, you know, formerly known as Most Deaf and great album. And, of course, Kendrick released his album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Great masterpiece. Just released a video for We Cry Together. So we're seeing a lot of great music coming out. And it's just interesting to see how veteran acts and newer acts are able to release their music simultaneously. And how newer generations kind of feel like, oh, let me listen to this. And now I'll listen to this as opposed to just listening to one thing and being close-minded, it seems like today's kids, their music is pretty much on shuffle now. Whereas back when we were coming up, music was a little bit more segregated because we didn't really have all these outlets to go to to be like, okay, hey, here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this, where you had to manually create your own playlist off of mixtapes you made off of the radio or mix CDs when you were downloading via a 56K dial-up internet. 
Yeah. I mean, so question for you, like, do you feel, do you feel like the music resonates with you today? Like it used to, or does, or is it like you listen to it, you know, that Friday morning, that one time, and then, you know, it's, it's on to the next one because of the, the volume of music that, that comes out every week. Um, I feel that, you know, today's music, it speaks to the younger generation and primarily for the old older generation. It's pretty much still out there, still relevant, but you just got to go and dig for it because, of course, you're not going to have it on your mainstream outlets. But, you know, different era, different day. And, you know, I don't know what the kids are listening to. I just know it's it's just not my speed. Mm -hmm. You know, but but embracing it at, at the same time, because you don't want to be like Dr. Lee on Drumline, where you're just bashing what's new and not embracing it and only being stuck in your old ways. But knowing that music and culture is forever moving forward, not backwards. You got to embrace the old and the new. And then I also believe, um, isn't it today that. A&T in North Carolina Central, they're playing in Charlotte for the Aggie Eagle Classic. Yeah. So can we talk about yeah. real quickly before we wrap the importance of the HBCU marching band and how HBCUs are of importance within our culture? And we're seeing, you know, with Eddie George at Tennessee State, Deion Sanders over at um, Jackson State, and I believe Mo Williams is the basketball coach at, I believe, either Alabama State or Alabama A&M, one of the two, and how HBCUs have been the lifeline for, you know, the culture. Right. I mean, I'll just, like, speak personally. Like, Hampton was my dream school. I wanted to go to Hampton. Um, that didn't happen. I was also considering South Carolina State and Elizabeth City State. But, um. I ended up at Winthrop University, but I've always, even with Stop, Look, and Listen, I've always wanted to, you know, shed light on the importance of HBCUs. Like I had conversation with Dr. Kevin James. He's the president of Morris Brown College. We went to Winthrop together. Um, I just feel like without HBCUs, um, we would we would be limited in our avenues as far as, you know, being able to um, get an experience, you know, especially like with critical race theory, education, um, learning our history and taught by people that know the history, um, the networking, being able to um, build relationships with people in fortune 500 companies that look like us or, um, you know, having access to to uh, people working at banks that can um, advise us on getting loans or, you know, starting our own business, purchasing homes, things of that nature um, is important. And a lot of that is is tied to um, HBCUs um, at, from an athletic standpoint, especially like the NFL. There are so many Hall of Famers. Um, you know, that came from HBCUs like Jerry, Jerry Rice and Walter Payton. And then, you know, for whatever reason, uh, all of our top athletes stop, stop attending HBCUs. And because of the 
the names that you mentioned um, earlier with Eddie George, Deion Sanders, um, Hugh Jackson at Grambling State, um, I think those personalities uh, will, you know, be able to uh, reignite uh, the passion and the exposure for um, these institutions. Right. I agree. And then um, they had the Hall of Fame game. I think this is today, too, with uh, Central State University, their HBCU out of Wilberforce, uh, mm-hmm. Ohio. Western Salem again, State. Salem State, Stephen A. Smith's alma mater and how, you know, it's the whole vibe at HBCU. It's, it's pretty much it's Wakanda meets Atlanta because you're seeing yourself in its authentic form and you are being your true self without compromising and walking in your authentic blackness. But as we know with uh, HBCU's football games, halftime is game time. Marching bands are what it's all about down south. You could go from mm-hmm. FAMU's band, Grambling, Southern, Winston State, A&T, all the HBCUs. I mean, the marching band is pretty much the lifeline uh, for right. HBCUs. And uh, before we go, bro, um, any shout-outs you want to give, plug projects for forecast media and socials? Okay. I mean, definitely want to start off by uh, giving you a shout-out, Jarrell. Uh, like I've said, even when I interviewed you, um, you have been been an inspiration, you know, dating back to the time machine. And uh, just the stories that you you told being ahead of your time. So I will always salute you. I salute um, the A43, you know, the home home turf, Buford, South Carolina, St. Helena, um, the Winthrop family, my Carolina, North Carolina family, uh, all of my loved ones, uh, everybody with forecast media. There's, you know, more content to come. You know, be on the lookout for the good old boys. So returning with myself, D. Mario Washington, Q Kittles, and Grand Wiz. Uh, throw up tackle, the bedroom, uh, plenty of other shows that we're developing. Um, stop looking, listen. You can check me out every Friday where I'm interviewing um and celebrating black excellence. Um Breaking Changes, the tech podcast I work on behind the scenes. Uh, Ken Lane is the host. We interview the leaders in the API tech space. I have a few other um, projects that will hopefully be coming down the pike soon. So be on the lookout, you know, just getting some paperwork done on those. Um, I, I salute everyone in this podcast space. It's not easy. Everyone thinks it's easy, but it's not. Uh, just continue to work, follow your dreams, stay consistent, uh, network, and, you know, just let the work speak for itself. Uh, you can find find more on me, um, Instagram, One Man Catalog, Facebook, One Man Catalog, Forecast Media, um, Facebook and Instagram, website, myforecast.com. All right, and there it is. You can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts and on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big thank you and round of applause to my brother from another mother, 
from Forecast Media, Mr. Latour Garner. Latour, bro, thank you very much for coming on once again, my man. All right. It's been an honor. As yeah. always, it was fun. Yes, sir.